You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around looking at What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's denying Call me Mr. Boy's best friend is his mother. You have no style. You can bark all day, little dog. Everyone! Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. I hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving without too much drama. I wrote this episode about a week before the 2020 U.S. election, so these words were written under a different kind of stress than the one I'm likely experiencing while recording this episode. Hey, what do you know? I was right. Really wish I wasn't. Even though it still feels like March, the end of the year is upon us, and what a year it has been. Fun fact, I went vegan for a month back in January, and that feels like it was about 20 years ago. Since all of our lives have pretty much been dominated by the pandemic this year, I figured, hey, dive in, let's get another pandemic in the mix. So I've decided to do an episode about the last time a pandemic was a worldwide issue for the field I've dedicated my life's work to, the entertainment industry. 102 years ago, film was expanding rapidly as an industry in the United States, aiming to become the fifth largest economy in the country after agriculture, coal, steel, and transportation. While less advanced than film industries in Europe, as the American industry was riddled with infighting, due to fights over patents and the rights to distribute and exhibit films, any possible growth would be ultimately stunted when the Spanish flu swept the globe, bringing the film industry to a screaming halt in its wake. Before we go any further, I want to attach this disclaimer to this episode given the state of the world and opinions on the current pandemic. For some reason, that's what you gotta do these days. This is not a political show, nor is it ever going to be. I keep my political leanings to my personal life, so you will find none of it here, just facts. And for this episode, I took a lot of time looking at multiple sources from multiple viewpoints. Bottom line, science is science, y'all. As someone who's had direct experience from a completely different life-threatening illness, I know how misinformation spreads and is used to frighten people. That will not be happening here. I will be stating strictly scientifically and historically accurate facts throughout when talking both about the Spanish flu and COVID-19. Since this episode is a little different than some of the others I've done so far, I want to actually cite a couple of my major sources within the audio of this episode. The links will be in the show notes as well. I got a lot of help from the April 1st, 2020 Hollywood Reporter article, Closed Movie Theaters and Infected Stars, How the 1918 Flu Halted Hollywood by Hadley Mears, and from the Deadline article, Historian William Mann on How the 1918 Spanish Flu Changed Hollywood Forever and How COVID-19 Might Too. If you want to dive even deeper about Hollywood during this era, I highly recommend William Mann's book, Tinseltown, Murder, Morphine, and Madness at the Dawn of Hollywood. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime.
1918 was already turning out to be a banner year for the motion picture business. Roughly 20,000 movie palaces were in America. Compare that to roughly 5,900 in 2019. Film distributors literally couldn't keep enough new content in theaters to meet audience consumption. The world was at war, yes, but it was mercifully winding down after four and a half years, and Hollywood was fighting to become the new capital for the American film industry. This growth would soon be stopped dead in its tracks. The Spanish flu was an H1N1 virus with avian origins. You could catch it the way you catch most flus, through the airborne coughs and sneezes of an infected individual via droplets in the air or touching a surface with the recently landed droplets. Flus in general are highly contagious and directly affect the respiratory system. While flu outbreaks still happen every year with varying severity, this depends on what strain is spreading the most. A flu shot, for example, vaccinates you against all new strains of the flu, allowing your body to create antibodies against the variations of the virus should you come in contact with it. The 2020 vaccine, for example, protects you against three or four different strains depending on which vaccine you receive. All of them protect against H1N1 and H3N2. H3N2 caused the 1968 flu pandemic, as well as either one or two influenza B strains. Altogether, there are four different types of flu, A, B, C, and D, but the A's and B's are the most contagious and the ones most likely to cause an epidemic or pandemic. Additionally, the A strains can spread to humans, birds, and pigs, which is why we get the mutations every so often. By the time the Great War, or World War I as we know it now, had ended in November 1918, the Spanish flu was already in its second wave. Symptoms of the illness had been observed as far back as January of that year in a Haskell County jail in Oklahoma, though the official start date for the pandemic is generally marked by the first confirmed case. Albert Gitchell, An army cook based at Camp Funston in Kansas was recorded to have symptoms synonymous with the H1N1 influenza on March 4, 1918. Within the week, 522 men at the camp were sick, and the virus had already reached Queens, New York, nearly 1,400 miles away. By the end of April 1918, the Spanish flu had made its way to France, Italy, Spain, Great Britain, Poland, and the Ukraine. A month after that, North Africa, India, and Japan. It reached China and Australia by the middle of the summer before it began to dissipate. Symptoms in this first wave were generally mild and the death toll was pretty low. Because of this, the Spanish flu didn't seem like that much of a big deal. The mortality rate wasn't unusually high for the flu of the time. The U.S. reported about 75,000 deaths during the first wave, and in 1915, during the same period, it had been about 63,000 for seasonal flu. As no quarantines or social distancing measures were implemented at the time, the biggest disruption the flu made to life as usual seemed to occur at the front lines of the war, where three quarters of French troops, half the British forces, and over 900,000 German soldiers fell ill. H1N1 festered on the front lines due to the deplorable, rat-infested conditions in the trenches of war, which destroyed the soldiers' immune systems. So if it seemingly started in the Oklahoma-Kansas areas, why is it called the Spanish flu? 
Well, though its namesake country, Spain, didn't get hit too hardly, at least compared to some other countries, by the Spanish flu, wartime censorship and propaganda claimed that the situation was much more dire there than it actually was. On the other side of the coin, Britain, France, the U.S., and Germany all initially censored and restricted early reports of the flu's effects on each respective country. And Spain, which was a neutral country during the war, openly described the horrible effects of the pandemic. So, the Spanish flu it was. In August 1918, the Spanish flu came back with a vengeance. Due to troop movements, the flu managed to spread worldwide. This time, people were dying within hours and days of developing symptoms, their skin turning blue and their lungs filling with fluid. In the U.S., the life expectancy dropped by a dozen years. By October, the majority of the world saw its highest fatality rates, with the flu causing many millions of deaths. In India alone, an estimated 12.5 to 20 million people died of the Spanish flu in the fall of 1918. When I was young, I loved my lollipop. I loved them As the situation got seemingly more and more dire stateside, there were public health authorities that did exist, though their response protocols did not include influenza. Social distancing measures were implemented, very similar to the ones we have today. Masks were either required or heavily encouraged, though like today, people argued their effectiveness and there were groups that protested their implementation like they do now. Schools, places of worship, large public gatherings, and of course the movie theaters were closed to prevent further spread. So, what did this mean for Hollywood? Hollywood was still pretty young at this point, having just broken free from Thomas Edison's attempts to stop them from making and distributing films. As a reminder, Edison's MPPC was a group of older, mostly American film studios whom had formed a trust to ensure that they alone owned the rights to produce, distribute, and exhibit motion pictures, and everyone else would have to pay the piper if they wanted to do the same. In Hollywood, the MPPC couldn't reach them. By 1918, most of the studios you know and love films from today were settling into their homes in Hollywood, including Paramount, Warner Brothers, Universal, MGM, 20th Century Fox, and Columbia. At first, Hollywood wasn't sweating the Spanish flu too much. The second wave seemed to be pretty much isolated to the East Coast. Yes, the theaters were closed, but that was a small part of the country. As it crept west, however, and more and more theaters began closing, this affected the studio's bottom lines. If there were no butts and seats, there was no money in the bank. If you listen to any of my episodes on the Big Five, you know that a lot of these studios in their early years pretty much lived picture to picture financially. So this was really, really bad for them. Los Angeles Mayor Frederick Woodman created a medical advisory board in late September 1918, warning the city to prepare for the worst. One month later, California's governor, 
William D. Stevens, called for voluntary mask wearing in an effort to curb the spread. Woodman agreed with the governor, but the city council fervently disagreed with the implementation of mask wearing. How were the studios expected to shoot movies when the actors would be required to cover half of their faces? By October 1918, the second wave of the flu reached Hollywood and the city's reactions were swift. L.A. City Hall ordered all cinemas closed on October 11th, shuttering the 83 Los Angeles theaters. The National Association of the Motion Picture, the censorship board of the pictures at the time, announced an embargo on all new films from October 14th to November 14th. Filmland is full of gloom and germs, Moving Picture World reported in November 1918. Everyone you meet has a different cure for the flu, and in spite of this, everyone you meet has either just gotten over an attack of the flu or is just getting down with it. Los Angeles-based theater owners like Sid Grauman took to passing out gauze masks for cinema goers. Grauman poo-pooed the embargo, telling the LA Times he had plenty of films and a sneezeless audience, until he too was shut down. Theater owners were pissed off of the closure and embargo when no one else's businesses had been targeted. The heads of the Theater Owners Association, a trade organization of theater owners, appeared masked up before L.A. City Council, asking for social distancing measures to be implemented so that they might be allowed to reopen. Health Commissioner Dr. Luther Milton Powers denied the request. This was the area of the motion picture business that probably felt the pandemic the hardest. Movie going at this time could only be done at movie houses. Television wouldn't be around in any significant way for about 20 years. The months and months of closures made it impossible for many of them to carry on as they were living month to month as it was. Most movie theaters would not start opening back up until the middle of 1919. Adolf Zucker, president and one of the founders of Famous Players, later Paramount, sensed an opportunity. If you listened to my episode on Paramount Pictures, you know that Adolf Zucker was not exactly a knight in shining armor. He was a man with a vision, surely, but he didn't really care whom he ran out of business to make those visions a reality. It was during the Spanish flu pandemic that Zucker realized he could make a boatload of money if he also owned the theaters that exhibit his company's pictures. Zucker bought up every theater he could, essentially creating the pipeline for the American studio system that would lead to Hollywood's golden age a decade or so later, as many studios followed in his footsteps. Zucker sent his lawyers all over the country with offers to purchase the fledgling theaters. Many took this lifeline, allowing the studio, soon to be known as Paramount Pictures, to exponentially expand in a very short amount of time. Also by doing this, because of his personal biases, ensured that women were removed from positions of power and independent filmmakers, including those that were persons of color and or female, from being able to distribute their own films. Zucker bought their distribution networks and slammed the door in their face. This lack of equal opportunity and job availability remains an issue to this day. Farewell, let the quail. 
It's a long, long way to Tipperary, but my heart's right When the coronavirus outbreak ramped up back in March in the States, the first major film star to publicly announce that they had contracted it was America's dad, Tom Hanks, and his wife, Rita Wilson, who is also an actress. Since then, many other celebrities have contracted COVID, and of course, like today's pandemic, many stars found themselves stricken with the Spanish flu back in 1918. One of the world's first movie stars, Mary Pickford, contracted the Spanish flu in January of 1919. So did Lillian Gish, most known for her work with D.W. Griffith. Both survived. The largest casualty of the Hollywood film industry from the Spanish flu was Harold Lockwood. While nowhere near a household name today, Lockwood was a member of Adolf Zucker's famous players. One of his first films was with Mary Pickford in 1914's Hearts Adrift. Lockwood was an early casualty of the Spanish flu, passing away in October 1918 in New York City, mere days after contracting the disease. Lockwood had gotten it while shooting 1919's Shadows of Suspicion. The film had to be completed using a double. If you had been around in the late 1910s and were a relatively frequent consumer of the pictures, you likely have heard of the aforementioned individuals, the ones who likely didn't have to worry financially about not working for a few months. The movie star's lifestyle existed even back then and made it seem like everyone working in the industry was quite well off. These people, however, are the absolute tippy top of the mountain financially in entertainment, and it is a steep slope to the bottom. Most individuals employed in the film industry are people you never have and likely never will know the names of. Their names rolling anonymously by during the end credits while you wait for the after credits scene. They're the ones making a living wage instead of the extravagant ones you hear about in regards to executives, above the lines like producers and directors, and actors. They were the ones most immediately impacted when the studios went dark during the Spanish flu. Some actors of the era, like Norma Talmadge, gave up their salaries to allow the studio workers to continue to collect a wage when production came to a standstill. Talmadge had her own film corporation at the time, which she had founded with her first, much older husband, Joseph M. Schenck, the future chairman of 20th Century Fox. Mr. Moon, I've introduced you to my turtle dog. With the theater shuttered and production halted, some believed the Spanish flu would be the death of the film business. Many young studios closed down at this time or went to a part-time schedule. Smaller studios couldn't afford to close for months on end, and some of them combined resources to form slightly larger film companies. In an attempt to reopen studios to at the very least be allowed to film, producer Robert Brunton begged Congressman H.Z. Osborne in a letter asking to let films continue to be made. A large majority of motion picture studio work here is done outdoors and is less dangerous during the epidemic than any other industry, he wrote. 
Also in the letter, he mentioned that if the studios were closed, he wouldn't be able to keep up with his Liberty Bond payments, which could damage the war effort. Nothing like a gentle threat to keep the lights on. Whether it was because of Brunton's letter or something else, production was allowed to restart a mere two weeks after they had been ordered to shut down. Crowd scenes were banned, and groups of people known for massing around film sets were quickly dispersed. Studios put safety measures in place, including handing out masks to crew, which some complained about how inconvenient they made smoking, having security spray people with disinfectant, and or sprinkling guests with disinfecting powder. Seven weeks after the business closures were implemented in LA, they were lifted, and theaters were allowed to reopen in early December. The closure was referred to by local Angelinos as the, quote, funless season, and those same locals were reassured that going forward, quote, the liveliest, the snappiest, the brightest, and the best pictures for our delectation would be available for their viewing pleasure. When the theaters did open back up, it was with a very different lineup of programming as well. Blocks of short films had been replaced by the films we associate with movie theaters today, going from one or two real films to five or more in length. This was the advent of the feature film. By the spring of 1919, roughly a year after the first recorded case, the pandemic had slowed down in Los Angeles. Studios were back up and running, and this short, difficult time was allowed to more or less be put behind them. The 1920s were coming, and an immense amount of money was about to pour into the entertainment industry. The Spanish flu would in total infect about 500 million people worldwide, which was about a third of the world's population at the time, killing over 50 million of them. By the summer of 1919, the infected had pretty much either died or developed immunity, slowing down the virus's ability to spread. Life went as back to normal as was possible. What the pandemic did do was allow Hollywood to become the center of the film industry. Los Angeles's quick, even if unpopular, reaction to the pandemic probably saved it as it was much more appealing to wait out a pandemic in Southern California than a chilly winter in New York where the money men of the motion pictures were located and disease was rampant. The films that would come out of Hollywood in the years following the pandemic, most notably The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse in 1921 and The Ten Commandments in 1923, cemented Hollywood as the center of the American motion picture and, by extension, the world's. Sugar, sugar, everybody's crying cause it's mighty scarce up here. So, what can we learn from the Spanish flu pandemic about what might be next for the Hollywood film industry? Well, I'm no expert, but this pandemic is certainly being treated differently as the world has become much smaller in the last 100 years. We're all connected by accessible air travel, allowing viruses like COVID to spread much faster than 100 years ago. If the world hadn't been at war in 1918, the Spanish flu wouldn't have been able to spread as rampantly as it did. For the most part, 
Movie theaters have been shut down in the U.S. since March, with no end in sight as COVID cases have skyrocketed in the last month. Movie theaters also lost their most profitable season for 2020, April to August, and the industry as a whole is looking to lose about $5 billion or more before this is all over. A major difference from the Spanish flu, however, is that there are different avenues studios can take to have their films exhibited. I, of course, am talking about the existence of television, home video or VOD for those under 30, and more recently, streaming services. This has allowed studios to maintain a stream of revenue throughout the theater closures. While this isn't doing much for the theaters, it's at least keeping a section of the entertainment industry alive. As far as revenue goes, it's not widely known what the losses and gains are, as most streaming services don't release specific numbers. The other fact of the matter is that the studios don't totally know how to make sense of these new sets of numbers and how they relate to a box office figure, which has been the standard for over 100 years. When the quarantines began in the United States, many films went to streaming platforms. The film Trolls World Tour was released directly to VOD in lieu of a theatrical release a few weeks after the quarantine initially began in California. The success of the release seemed to please the powers that be at Universal, who released a statement that going forward, all Universal releases would release on VOD and theaters on the same day which led to a public feud with the head of AMC Theaters, whom threatened to ban all Universal films from their theaters. An agreement was eventually made between the two of them back in the summer. When the second COVID wave died down in some regions, a few places had been allowed to reopen their movie theaters in the U.S. at reduced capacity and with social distancing regimens in place. Many films of 2020 have been pushed to 2021, but one that remained on the schedule was Tenet. Director Christopher Nolan is known for being quite vocal about the importance of his films being released on a big screen, so it wasn't too big of a surprise, at least to me, that this would be the guinea pig for theatrical releases in a COVID world. While the film performed pretty well internationally, the film made a middling $45 million domestically as I write this. To compare, Nolan's last film, 2017's Dunkirk, made $188 million domestically in about the same amount of time. Some studios, notably Disney, used their own streaming platform to release some 2020 films the studio didn't want to push to next year. Artemis Fowl was released in June, and Mulan, which had originally been scheduled for a March release, was instead released on Disney Plus in September for an additional fee on top of the monthly price subscribers already paid. The last remaining release for this year, Wonder Woman 1984, was announced last week to be the first major Hollywood film to release on streaming and cinemas concurrently. The day before I recorded this, everything's changing real fast, y'all, Warner Brothers announced that 17 of their 2021 releases will be released on HBO Max, their streaming service, the same day as their theatrical releases. Once again... AMC, not too happy, but that is currently a developing story. Because what this means for theaters, it's hard to say. As someone who's spent a great deal more time working in entertainment than studying its patterns, I relied on some smarter people to surmise what might happen next to the Hollywood film industry.
In an article written by Beth Daly for The Conversation, entitled, Hollywood is Creating a Void, like the one that permanently stunted European film after Spanish flu, Daly looked at both the effects of the Spanish flu and COVID-19 effects on the industry so far. In her article, she argues that the opposite of what happened during the Spanish flu is what is happening now to Hollywood. Hollywood studios are, by and large, clutching desperately to their expensive blockbuster films, not allowing even open cinemas worldwide to exhibit them. This is causing theaters to shudder even in places that are allowed to be open. This lack of content, Daly argues, could lead to Hollywood losing their dominance on the world stage. After all, this was what led to the fall of Europe's dominance in the film industry, and it's already happening. For the first time in film history, a Chinese-produced film will be the highest-grossing film worldwide, The 800. The film is a historical war drama set during the Second Sino-Japanese War. China is the second-largest market for the U.S. film industry's box office returns. Daly's argument is thus. And it's one that I frankly agree with, though I've always looked at streaming platforms to be a more immediate threat to theaters, especially now. If studios keep holding on to their releases, most notably the Hollywood features, other markets may come to take a hold within the cinemas. While this would be great for seeing a broader diversity of films and people, it could spell financial disaster for Hollywood, which is a problem for a lot of us that work in this town. By the time the studios do release their hoarded blockbusters, they may enter into a world and a market that has learned to go on without them. All of this is conjecture, of course, as the COVID-19 pandemic is still very much reality, but it's certainly something to consider. How long are people willing to wait for something before finding something else to bide their time? People these days aren't exactly known for their long attention spans. I hate this phrase, but it's ultimately true in this case. Only time will tell. Movies aren't going anywhere thanks to streaming. It will ultimately be the heart of cinema, the movie theater that is ultimately in trouble. That's going to do it for this week. Hope I wasn't too much of a bummer. Most of your behind-the-scenes entertainment workers are still in a holding pattern waiting to get back to work. Unlike what some people I've heard say in public office, again, not getting political or naming names, have stated about us, it's not easy for all of us to just go and get another job in a different field. We're trained professionals within an industry just like everyone else. The glitz and glamour of Tinseltown begins and ends on the silver screen. If you know anyone who works on a set or whom has ever been an assistant, ask them their worst experience. You won't be disappointed. But this is our industry. We have good days and bad days. We love some coworkers. We dislike others. But it's the thing we've dedicated our lives to. It's not as simple as going and getting a job somewhere else. 
With the holidays coming up, I know people like to give to charities. Might I suggest one which supports the behind the scenes and event workers? You can find the links to some of those organizations helping us out in the show notes. As always, if there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode at Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, at Tinsel underscore Factory on Twitter, on Facebook at the Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out for the time being. So if you could rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. I am totally at the mercy of the algorithms. I've also got the beginnings of a merch store. So if you want to check that out, the link is in the show notes. I'm planning on getting a bunch of stuff up there over the holidays. Next week for the 2020 finale... Damn, that feels good to say. I'm going to do my best and wrap up this year in film. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap. Ten million soldiers to the war have gone Who may never return again Ten million